Good morning. I'm so glad that we are able to be streaming. I assume we're still doing that, to my knowledge. Um, our passage this morning is Second Kings. Um, last week was hard. Uh, not, I don't want to blame it all on the technology, but just I felt, um, I don't know, I had a lot of feelings and was struggling with what passage to preach. Do I recap last week? So I jump forward to chapter four, which we'll look at next week. Um, and part of the problem is chapter two ends really difficultly, and yet it's in the Bible. And so I uh, just really felt the Lord uh, confirming that to come back and remind ourselves of what we looked at last week, but finish out chapter two. So we're going to do that. Uh, just to remind you of last week's sermon in a nutshell. Elijah and Elisha are having their final conversations. Elijah is about to ascend or be taken up in a whirlwind. And Elisha knows this. And there's three different conversations that really mirror each other. And each time Elijah tells Elisha, you can stop, I'm going to go farther. And then Elisha says, never. You know, as the Lord lives, as you live, I'm going to go with you, showing his faithfulness as a disciple. And each time each town had these people, these sons of the prophets, as they were called, that would come out and only know half of the truth. And they would tell Elisha, hey, your master who's over you will no longer be over you. So they were right, but it wasn't quite right. And each time he would shush them. And, um, and so you, you see this kind of dichotomy between the way Elisha sees the world in a way the sons of the prophets see the world. And we're wanting to pick up on that as well this week. Uh, This passage, we're going to go back to, we're going to start at verse 9. We're going to see Elijah go up and Elisha's response. And then we're going to jump to verse 19 and finish out the chapter, uh, just six more verses, with two little stories. The first two miracles of Elisha's prophetic career. So join with me in reading these stories. I, I will warn you, let me pause. That last story is one of those stories you're just like, what? In fact, Tucker ran up to me today and said, hey, what did you say? Um, Go up, you baldy. He said that to me. He's been noticing that I'm maybe thinning out a little. No. He read the Bible. That was good. So his family prepared him for this hard passage, and now he's ready for it. Okay, here we go. Verse 9. When they had crossed, that is, they crossed the Jordan, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces, into two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, 
The water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now we're gonna, we, we covered this next portion last week, so we'll move ahead to verse, four, to verse 19. Elisha has come to the town of Jericho, and it says, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are mystified by your word, yet we believe it's true. We know that your gospel is so profound, and we think we understand it, but there are depths we've not yet gotten to, at least in our minds, even though the reality and the rescue does rest on us because of Jesus. So as we read your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate, illuminate it to our minds, and through this time we would understand a little more what these passages might mean for us. In your name we pray, amen. I can't fully recap last week, but I just want to point out a few things that we see in the earlier part of this passage as we move in. The first is that Elisha asks for this double portion of the Spirit. He's not wanting to be better than Elijah. It's that he recognizes he needs more faith. And also, and we did not talk about this last week, many scholars see Elisha um, as being like Jesus as well. Now, it's it's hard when you do that. Let me try to explain. Moses had Joshua. Elijah had Elisha, and so a lot of scholars see Elijah with a J as John the Baptist, which he was asked, are you Elijah? That was something that he was asked as well as Jesus. And so therefore, in a way, Jesus would be a type of Elisha as well. Now, this doesn't have to be perfectly in sync because what we know is that in the New Testament, when we learn of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we are given these 3D lenses that we can now look at these Old Testament passages like the road to Emmaus and understand them far better. And what we see, the name Elisha means the God who saves. The name Jesus or Yeshua means the Lord who saves. And so you do see a picture of the both overlapping. And in our passage last week, we see Elisha um, carrying on Elijah's mission. And so we talked about how the Spirit, after Jesus ascends, the Spirit comes on his church. And so Jesus, when he ascends like Elijah, we carry on his mantle, the church, right? We continue doing what he did, and we're going to learn more about that this week. So that's some of the things we talked about. The title of this sermon is Dangerous Grace, question mark, because I think there's a secret that this passage might help us to understand how to see the gospel more clearly. Like that's what we want to find out from this passage. And, and what we know is that we often, as Christians, if we're not careful, 
we gravitate toward one or, other, or the other side of God's personality, either his holiness or his love. There's a, past, there's a, a quote, and I think Dan has it ready on a slide, from Chameleon Christianity by Dick Kies. That's how you pronounce his name. He is the um, head of Labrie in Boston. Labrie was founded by Francis Schaeffer in Switzerland, still continues to this day in Switzerland and London and Boston and Canada. But listen to these words. He says, apologist Francis Schaeffer used to say that in our relationships with others, it is relatively easy to show either the holiness of God or the love of God. It is quite easy to be either coldly uncompromising against sin or warmly tolerant of it. But what is difficult and in fact impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit is to show both God's holiness and love at the same time. When the two are together, we are neither harsh nor bland. Now, that's a tricky quote that the rest of this discussion will bear out, but I want us to understand what he's saying. When the Holy Spirit comes on the church and on a believer because of the blood of Christ, we now can have both a love of God's holiness and a love and understanding of God's grace. And we're going to see that in these two passages. And last week, the challenge as a church, both this congregation and the church universal, is are we carrying that mantle of Jesus into this broken world? And I want to take that same question and just with these final two passages of chapter two, ask, are we, um, are we carrying the, the, both the love of God and the justice of God into this broken world? Both are needed. That's really hard to do. We tend to separate them. And so the proposition for this morning, because God's justice and his love are met in Christ's atonement, that's true. Therefore, the church can have both. It is possible to have both love and ju- mercy. And when I talk, I'm oh, sorry, love and justice. I'm gonna, I don't want to conflict the words. Love and mercy go together. Holiness and justice go together. Okay, have I confused everybody? Two points. Two points. Mercy is point number one. Justice is point number two, okay? And they're going to follow the two passages in order. So let's start with the first little passage. And I'm talking now about the two little stories. Um, Verses 19 to 22 is this first miracle that Elisha performs. Here he is. He's got the spirit of, of God on him. That is the spirit that Elijah also had in a double portion. He's indeed seen Elijah ascend. He saw the whole thing. We know he had this. And he goes to Jericho, right? And when he gets to Jericho, they recognize him as a man of God. They see him as a prophet. And so they obviously have a conversation about their needs. And they explain, behold, the situation of the city is pleasant. I'm in verse 19. But they make, a, they make a complaint. They said, however, the water is bad. The land is unfruitful. Now, we aren't told all of the situation with the land and the water, but that sounds really drastic. Um, So what's going on there in Jericho? I want to just give you a a brief history of Jericho. Remember, I know the children in the room and at home, you remember Jericho, right? The walls came tumbling down. Jericho was an enemy to God. Like his people, the conquest, they came in and Rahab and her family were the only friends of God in Jericho. So they were rescued. But the rest of the people did not want to be anywhere near God or his people. 
So they, a battle ensued, but the battle was they just marched around the city and God did the fighting and the walls came tumbling down. And Joshua proclaimed, no one should ever rebuild this city. If you do, anybody forever, your children will be cursed. Well, if you jump ahead to where we began this entire series in 1 Kings 16, we find out that in the day of Ahab, there was this man named Hiel of Bethel, ironically, where we're going to be in our next moment. Uh, and he rebuilt Jericho. And he lost two sons in the process. We aren't told how he lost them, but he had two sons that passed away. And so you have this kind of cursed city. However, jump ahead to now Elisha. He comes to this city, and it's still a town. It's still a city. seems to be thriving. But there's water that is bad. And he brings mercy. You know the rest of the story. He goes and gets this bowl. Uh, I don't know what it means, why he puts salt in it. We don't know all the reasons for what he does. Much like many of Jesus's miracles, sometimes he uses mud and, and spit. You know, he does different things, but he puts it in the water and the water was healed, right? And so the gospel is a merciful gospel. It comes in with mercy, right? Joshua, Elisha did not owe anything to Jericho, and he saves the city, and he purifies their water. Now, water um, is an image in the Bible that really means life. It really pictures the Spirit pouring out on us. We see that in John 7. He who is thirsty, if you have, you know, the Lord will, will provide for you a well where you will never be thirsty, right? All through the Gospel of John, you see the woman at the well in chapter 4 in need of water of life, and that, and that goes on. You also see salt, right? Matthew 5, Jesus tells the church that we are the salt of the earth. We're to preserve the earth. So the question for the church, for all of us, is, is are we bringing mercy and grace into the world? Is that something we're doing? There's another place in, in uh, the Old Testament where water is talked about. Actually, I was reading this this week, and then Emily and I talked through it. So I wanted to share it this morning from Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah is prophesying to a nation that has rebelled, right? Jericho was unbelieving and they received mercy. Well, Jeremiah is prophesying to the people of God who have often rebelled. And he says this, has a nation changed its gods? This is chapter 2, verse 11. Even though they are no gods, has a nation changed them? My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. So let me paraphrase. Have you all ever heard of a nation who worshiped another god changing that god? The answer is no. They stick with it. They stick with their gods. But Israel, who has glory, has changed her god. Israel has gone to the Baal or gone to other gods. So he says this. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that is really a picture, I think, of the world we live in, even the Christian world, especially the Christian world, is we are a world who, though we know God is real, really we've turned to other idols. We've, we've let our hearts go other places, and we need mercy. We need God to show up and, and bring fresh water, just like Elisha brings to Jericho. And that is the job of the church. Our job as individuals, as families, as this congregation, as Stillwater congregations, 
as Oklahoman congregations, as the nation of America congregations, and as the world, all together, our job is in the places God has placed us to seek out the harm and bring mercy, to bring life. And is it something we even think about? To bring hope of the eternity of our King, to look for evil, to look for the broken places, and to bring healing. That's what the church is called to do. Is that something that we are about? That's what we see Elisha doing. And so as we conclude in a little bit, we'll talk about that. But first, I want to now deal with this part about the bear. Does anyone want to hear about the bears and the kids? I mean, I don't think you're going to like the story any better after I talk about it. But maybe you'll understand it a little bit. So here's Elijah, Elisha bringing mercy to Jericho. Then he goes up to Bethel. Um, and on his way up, we're told, he's going up. Some small boys came out. Um, let, me, let me just make two points first. Number one, earlier in 1 Kings, Bethel, Bethel is where Jeroboam instituted the worship of, of golden bulls and, and things like that. Not the golden calf from Exodus, but just idol worship because the northern tribes couldn't go into Jerusalem where, the, where the, the temple was, so they had to kind of form their own religions. And from that, and the point is that really created like this bastion, this town of idolatry. And so here is Elisha heading toward that place to bring mercy, right? To bring the gospel. And out come a lot of young, how does the text say it? Small boys. That's what gets us, isn't it? Now, I wish I could tell you they were like 30, but they weren't. Now, I will say the word small in Hebrew means, can also mean insignificant. So it, might, it definitely means they're, they're younger, but it doesn't mean like they're like tiny. It just means they're not yet, a, they're not yet men. The word for boy uh, can refer like you see Joshua, this, or, uh, Joseph is 17, and he's referred to with the same Hebrew word. But most scholars will come down to the age of like 13, Sorry, Meredith, they're your age. These are, these are your buddies, okay? And there's not just a few of them, okay? Like when the bears tear them up, there's 42 of them that get torn up. So there's a lot of them. And they're not just in town smoking cigarettes. Like they've planned this out. They went out and they found that Elisha was coming up. Maybe they heard news he was coming up from Jericho. And they go out with a calculated task of mocking him and tearing him up. I don't know that he was physically at risk, but they were ready to just tear him up, okay? Um, and so that's what they did. So Emily and I were talking through this passage. The term that came to her mind is, okay, boomer. Like, how many of you have said, okay, boomer? All the young people, raise your hand. Come on. My sons have said it to me. I happen to be thinning. So I like this passage. That's a joke. Laugh track. You need a laugh track. Um, they mock him. Now, I want to just, I don't want to blow over that. Mocking is something that God hates. In James chapter um, 3, we read, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have, made, who have, who have been made in God's likeness. So, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? In other words, our tongues can mock, can tear down. And so, it's not wrong to just understand that they're mocking Elisha 
an elder, but they're actually mocking Yahweh, the sender of Elisha. Like they are saying as a, as a group of the next generation, our whole city doesn't accept your message. We do not believe in Yahweh. Keep going. You came from Jericho, bypass Bethel, and keep your, going your way to Carmel or wherever you're going next. And there might have even been a threat involved. I don't know. So they come close, and he turns, and he fires a curse at them, right? Um, on the cover of our worship guide, you see this quote from the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I'm going to read it to you. I think everybody, most of you have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, but there's always a few that haven't. Most of you have heard of this quote. There's always a few that haven't. But it's, I love this kind of imagery that C.S. Lewis gives us. The beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, are explaining Aslan to Susan and the kids. And I, they, Susan says, I thought he was, was a man. Is he, is he safe? Because she's now found out he's a lion. And like any of us, you'd be terrified if the lion was going to come into your midst. And in that second paragraph, Mrs. Beaver says, um, she asked if she, she would be nervous, and Miss Beaver says, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. And then Susan says, then he isn't safe? Or no, Lucy says, then he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver jumps in, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What he captures there, Lewis does, is the fact that justice and fear even of God is not a bad thing for those that are in Christ, but it is fearful. And if you are with Aslan and he's fierce, you want his fierceness to go after those that are not for you. And the thing that makes this passage so hard is we see this kind of, we picture, I think, like precious moments, children just kind of like casually making a comment and this bear's ripping them up. This is a calculated effort of about maybe 113 to 17-year-olds who are coming out to tear down Elisha verbally, if not physically. And it's hard. It's, it's, I'm not going to say it's not hard. Um, he curses them. Leviticus 26 tells us this, I will let loose the wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children. So there's this sense in which there needs to be a fear of God that many of us have lost. And I think going back to that Schaefer understanding, many of us love the mercy and we love the cleaning of the water, but we come to these passages of justice and we get so scared or so upset and I think often it's because we have such a small view of our own sin, of the need, of the brokenness, right? Um, when I was a, I, I, the only jury I've ever sat on was, it was a civil suit and the parents of a dirt girl that was hit by a car, it was deceased, were suing the driver. And really when you listen to the evidence, it was this child, this girl's fault. She was a, um, probably 14, 15 year old um, and she had some, some learning disabilities, and she'd been told not to go across the street there. And so it was just one of those tragedies that you just you hate. And the parents wanted justice, and they didn't know how to go about it, but they, they were suing this man. But I'm on the jury. He can't go to jail. It's a civil suit, but he, you know, we can, he can be, lose a lot of money. And all I remember, ha- and I was younger, but I just remember that this dominant thought, 
that could have happened to me. Have you all ever, like, that could have happened to me. I could have been driving that car. That's the wrong thought. Now, I do think we made the right call legally, but it doesn't matter if it could have happened to me because I'm not the bar we're going by. Have you ever been in an argument and the other person says, you do that all the time? Or maybe you say that to the other person. What we're doing is we're saying the bar has been lowered so that we can all sort of make it, but it makes this really messy world we live in. And what the gospel does is it keeps the bar very, very high, right? And we need it there because there is holiness. There is justice. We long for justice. I won't go into the news stories that we've been reading this week in detail, but we long for justice in our world and we need to cry out for it. And we don't want to muddy the waters with, well, that's the way it's always been or that's what you or I would do. Rather, what the gospel gives us is a is a story that goes beyond belief, right? Uh, if the church continues in the stead of Elisha, I want to take us to the book of Acts. When you go to the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes on the church in two of the early miracles. One is the miracle of the lame beggar. Peter and John, you know the story, are heading up to the temple and they see the lame beggar who's begging for money And Peter says, I can't give you money, but I can give you Jesus. And in a similar fashion to what what Shane shared from Mark, he had forgiveness of sins offered, but he also had healing received. And he stood up and he walked. That's water to Jericho. That's healing that needs to happen. That's mercy, undeserved. Ananias and Sapphira are like the very next miracle. And I'm not, I know it's a strange term for that story, but justice. And we read the Ananias and Sapphira story and we can't believe the shock that God would, that Peter wouldn't just say, quit lying, quit lying, give us the real money you promised, go about your way, but that the Holy Spirit would bring death. But we need that. We need that bar to be that high. Why? Because like a cure for cancer, if if you don't go in and attack every place that's broken, you won't cure it. And the gospel goes to the deepest places. And what scares us is we think this thought, then I'm dead too. Amen. That's why we have the cross. So we go to this, let's back up a little bit to the gospel of John. If Acts is a picture of the church fulfilling the role of Elisha, let's back, his, you know, time-wise, into the Gospel of John where Jesus is just beginning his ministry. And as a type of Elisha, do you know what his two first miracles are in the book of John? Turning water into wine, first one. Remember the story. They're at a wedding. They've run out of wine, and they need wine. And so Mary, Jesus' mother, begs him, please, you know, not begs, but asks him to please make the water to wine or provide the wine. And he does so. But he starts by saying, woman, it's not my time. He sees the connection to the cross, doesn't he? And the very next thing he does in the Gospel of John is he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. What's he doing? He goes into this place of worship designed to bring glory and honor to Yahweh who at the, at the very center of this building is the Holy of Holies where a lamb is sacrificed for the mercy which Jesus will become. 
and he walks in and he sees money changers and, and people who are um, greedy just carrying on business in the court of the Gentiles and he loses it. He loses it. Now maybe 42 young boys weren't killed that day, but Jesus' wrath came out. Why? Because you and I and, and, and humanity is desperate for redemption, but it comes at a cost. And where it comes is for Jesus to be on the cross, crucified and dead, and that's the mercy we receive. And so often I think our gospel gets so watered down and we separate the two. We become legalists without any mercy because we think we're doing it and we're not. Or we become complete lazy Christians like, just give him mercy, give him mercy, because we're terrified of the fact that we couldn't do it. But Jesus did it. And when we have that truth, that Jesus died on the cross, and I am not arguing anything from my perspective. When I sit on a jury, or I'm in a conversation, or I'm looking at injustice in this world, I'm doing it on the basis of what Jesus has done. We are filled with his spirit, a double portion, not individuals. I'm not saying I have twice as much, but the church universal carries on the spirit of Christ. Millions and millions of Christians are going out into this world with his spirit of redemption, able to carry mercy and justice into the culture around them. And we need both. We sing the songs, but on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Like, do you understand? Like, we needed that wrath. He, be he begged the Lord, can this cup pass before me? And the answer was no. We needed him to receive that wrath so that you and I, as sons and daughters, do not receive the wrath. But make no mistake, someone did. And I think in my Christian life, I'm at my weakest when I try to make my sin out to be little. It's not that big of a deal. I'm a pretty good person. That's the beginning of a very weak Christianity. But when I make much of my sin, when I begin to go, you know, even that lie, even that idol, even that whatever that is, insignificant or vast sin that's oppressing our lives, it all needed the death of our Savior to cover us with his blood that we may be alive again. Is that what we believe? If it is, then this passage, as hard as it is, can start to make more sense. I want to close with a story that might help a little bit. It might confuse. But um, one of our hero, my hero, Jack Miller, uh, tells the story in, in Sonship where he, early on in his ministry, he's driving either to or from the church building. It's like dusk. And there's these teenage boys like, I think they're calling out names to an old woman, and they're like throwing like pebbles at her. And he becomes enraged. And he tears into that parking lot, and at this point, she's safe, and they're not necessarily dangerous, but he's just enraged. And he gets out and begins giving them, he says, the law. <laughs> like the Ten Commandments, you know, the love your honor, your mother, and your father. And, and he's just telling them all the ways they should, and he realizes, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this sermon. Like, he's just talking, but he's scared because they're just looking at him thinking, okay, boomer. And he doesn't know what he's going to do. So here's how he ends this little sermonette to these, little guy, to these teenagers. And I expect each and every one of you to come to church on Sunday morning. I'm the pastor right there, and he points to the steeple a few blocks away. And he gets in his car, and he leaves half surprised he's still alive. And he says he forgot all about it. The adrenaline dropped. He goes home, whatever. He forgot all about it. Sunday morning. In walks all of them. 
and their leaders. That's part of his testimony. And he knew he had to give them the gospel. And he began to share the gospel with them and disciple them. And that gang leader ends up being his son-in-law, who becomes a career missionary and to this day works for Surge Ministries. We need justice and we need mercy. And they come together in the cross of Christ. And if we believe that for ourselves, we can begin to believe that for the brokenness around us, in our homes, in our hearts, in our work, in our marriages, in our families, in our justice system, in our neighborhoods, in our, just it, it ripples out. Wherever you are, needs your prayer, needs your care, needs the salt and the light of the gospel. Let's pray for that. Lord Jesus, we know this passage is so hard because we so desperately want little people to be innocent, but we're not. Every human being needs the gospel. Every one of us needs the blood of Christ. And Lord, we know, Lord, that your people Uh, You died. You came to seek and save those whom you knew were yours. And you've rescued us and you've brought us into your kingdom. And we ask that freshly we would believe this gospel message, Lord, that you have died, that you took the wrath of God. Lord, as we've discussed in recent months, even at Easter, though the physical harm done to your body is unbelievable, what we are told and we believe is what hurt you the most was that your own father turn his face from you. So Lord, let us realize you took that on that we would never know that, that we would only know your love and your mercy. Let us live out of that reality. Let that drive us to show mercy and justice, Lord, to show both your holiness and your love to our world around us. Amen.